Let us now continue our series in Luke's Gospel, turning again to the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel. Beginning with verse 18. Will you pray with me? Our Father, with utter humility, we bow in your sacred presence, and we are astounded that we now have the privilege of praying and of hearing your word read and expounded. It is amazing condescension. It is sovereign free grace. It is mercy beyond compare that we, your people, have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb and that we now can turn to your word, hear and enjoy your presence and commune with you as Christ himself, through his Holy Spirit, speaks his word to our hearts. Therefore, we ask that you will give to to us that humility and that anticipation, uh, that true excitement of turning to your word, that desire of heart to be obedient. And we also pray for those among us today who are lost and who are undone and who do not know you, that they also may be drawn by the effectual operation of your Holy Spirit out of darkness and into light, out of the kingdom of the evil one into the kingdom of your own dear Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. Will you take now your copy of God's Word and stand as we read Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. This is the Word of God. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
People of God, as we have turned to his word over these past few weeks, we have seen the wind and the waves obey Jesus' authority, that the demonic realm is under his sovereign command, that the dead themselves respond to his gentle but almighty command to come to life, that he has the authority to provide as he fed the 5,000. The question that was asked when there was the stilling of the storm by the disciples was, who is this? And all of these authoritative miracles were intended by our Savior to again elicit the question, who is this? And now Jesus, having demonstrated his sovereign authority, calls for faith. He calls for confession. Do you confess the Lordship of Christ? Paul the Apostle said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Peter was the first disciple to confess that Jesus is God's own Son. Confession involves an intellectual understanding, yes, but it also is fiducia, it is trust. It involves the whole person, the heart that trusts Christ in his cross, in his resurrection, a heart that is willing to sacrifice even self for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And so the theme that runs through the passage that we have read this morning is the theme of confession, which leads us to see first confessing Christ, confessing Christ. Jesus has been praying alone. Luke, by the way, likes to note Jesus' prayer life. And he turns to his disciples and he asks, who do the crowds say that I am? They answer in verse 19, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Why is this inadequate? Because it fails to see who Jesus really is because it makes of him simply a prophet like others, because it does not grasp his uniqueness. Like many today who might say nice things about Jesus, but group him with other world religious leaders. And so he turns to his disciples and he becomes more precise and he says to them, who do you say that I am? And in the Greek text, you is in the emphatic position. It's as if he says to them, you, Who do you say that I am? The time is right to ask, to make them reflect. He has shown them in a series of miracles his divine authority, and by the work of the Spirit of God within Peter's heart, Peter, speaking for the others, says, The Christ of God, the one anointed by God, brave confession, He is saying, you are the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes and all of these Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. Peter expresses the truth of the gospel as he speaks for the twelve. Now, Luke gives to us the shortened version. You will recall that in Matthew, the fuller expression of this is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hendrickson says so well, a true believer is one who is willing, whenever necessary, to fly in the face of popular opinion and openly to express a conviction that is contrary to that of the masses. 
willing to stand up boldly in the interest of truth. The scriptures say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Peter's mind is becoming transformed. Peter will deepen, of course, in his understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Christ as this gospel moves along. Since the resurrection and completion of the canon, we have the clearest declaration of what this means. And that leads me to say these two things. First of all, don't wait until you have a full and complete understanding to confess Christ. Coming to faith in Christ is usually incremental. Peter's confession was a true confession, but it still needed maturing. And there are some here who can certainly make a true confession of Christ, even though that confession will mature. And indeed, it does mature for the rest of the Christian's life. But also, it leads me to say this. Why is the prevalent view that Jesus is the founder of a world religion inadequate? Just as there were those then who simply said he is a great prophet, or he is one who is somewhat special in some way. We are surrounded by people who are willing to say such things about Jesus. I've mentioned to you J.G. Voss before. J.G. Voss was the son of Gerhardus Voss, whom we mention in this church quite often. He was a missionary to China. J.G. Voss, when he would go into the villages and he would preach the gospel to the illiterate Chinese, took with him a sort of unfolding presentation of the gospel with a variety of panels. In the first panel, it showed a man that was in a deep pit with steep sides, every effort to climb out simply failing. He couldn't do it. It was utterly futile. In the second panel, a Confucianist has come to the brink of the pit, and he looks down into the pit, and he says to the poor man in the pit, Why didn't you watch where you were walking? A careful man doesn't fall into pits. And so he's left helpless by the Confucianist. Next, in the third panel, a Taoist priest advises the man to burn incense. Well, that will do him a lot of good, won't it? In the fourth panel, a Buddhist monk says, Poor man, trouble with you is that you want things that you cannot have. Just rid yourself of the desire to get out of the pit. And in the fifth panel, a Christian gets on his knees, reaches down into the pit to help the man out. And in the final sixth panel, the man is out of the pit on a rock singing praises to God. You see, biblical Christianity realizes that we are sinners, that we are hopeless, that we are helpless in ourselves, that we are in the pit, that human schemes, religions, and philosophies are futile, that only the good news of Jesus can help. The message of Christ, his person and work, the message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead, the message of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The message of the one who will not share his glory with the other, there is only one Savior, only one Redeemer, and it is Jesus Christ our Lord, the Christ of God confessed by Peter. Now, were we to compare this again with Matthew's gospel? I know we're preaching Luke, we focus there, but were we to briefly compare? You will remember that Matthew makes plain that it requires a spiritual faculty to truly confess Christ. 
One must be born from above to confess Christ. Free grace and omnipotence must raise you from the dead in order to confess Christ. The Holy Spirit in the heart enables a sinner to embrace Christ, to confess Christ, the world's opinion notwithstanding. May that happen to someone here this morning, that you are spiritually raised from the dead and confess the Savior for the first time. Now, Jesus strictly commanded that they not talk this point up. The opinions of the crowd are still too earthy. The time will come when this will be the theme for the world to hear, but not yet. Let it be seen in Jesus' words and miracles, and finally in the cross and resurrection, so the utterly incomprehensible must happen. The Son of God, before this grand reality of who He is, is proclaimed widely to the world. The Son of God must go to the cross. And so Jesus helps the disciples further to understand Secondly, the Christ we confess. If we see confession, now we see something of who this Christ is that Peter, the disciples, and that you are called upon to confess. And we read that in verses 21 and 22. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He came to die and to rise from the dead. One old commentator says, Now that the disciples have frankly avowed him to be the Christ, Jesus immediately begins to prepare them for the violent shock awaiting them. The Messiah must die as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And of the sacrifice, we learn something of the person who must die and rise. For he speaks of himself once again as the Son of Man, the mysterious figure of Daniel 7, who's who's surrounded by by thrones that were set around him, underscoring his kingly power to give this human figure representing God's people the impression to all who read that it is something more than a human. It is a way of expressing his deity, a way of expressing his humanity. The one who dies must be God become man. Only then could his sacrifice be infinitely valuable for those of us who need an infinitely valuable sacrifice to cover the multitude of our sins. We see the necessity of his sacrifice in verse 22 when he uses the word must. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Why must? Because it was decreed by God. Who holds the reins of the universe in his hands? Christ's voluntary suffering was determined in the eternal counsels of the Trinity. It is a must because he willingly serves his Father. It is a must because you and I would be lost without this sacrifice. It is a must because no other Savior by no other means can redeem us from our sins. It is a must. And of his sacrifice we also learn the suffering of it. For it says here, he must suffer many things. 
and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. Oh, what torture is behind these few words. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. And behind this word suffer are the hidden sufferings of the Savior. For Christ was not only rejected of the Jews, not only rejected of men, but he became sin in the sight of his Father as he bore our iniquities and satisfied divine wrath against us. I'll never forget as a boy reading the words of Robert Murray McShane, which I'm sure I have paraphrased in my brain in which McShane was dwelling upon the unknown sufferings of Christ, as the Greek liturgy puts it, thinking upon the fact that he would become sin in the sight of his father. And he said, I feel like a little child standing on the brink of some ravine, casting a stone and listening for it to fall, but unable to hear it. Or like a sailor casting his lead at sea, attempting to find the bottom but the lead cannot fathom the bottom. The ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable, said McShane. Which makes it wonderful to see that verse 22 also speaks of the victory of his suffering because he is raised on the third day. The resurrection is also governed by the must Not only must he suffer, must be rejected, must he bear our sins, but he must be raised on the third day. As E.J. Bicknell put it, the resurrection was God's public attestation of the claims of the crucified, the amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son. And so when we read verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is fleshing out the meaning of Peter's confession, the Christ in whom we believe and are called ourselves to confess. Why must he do these things? Because he must satisfy the wrath of God against us, because only he can redeem us from the curse of the law. Because only through his sacrifice are we reconciled to God, and only through his resurrection are we justified. Never, never allow these things to become commonplace. Oh, my soul, stand amazed. Stand amazed. He wove by his perfect sacrifice the perfect righteousness to be imputed to his people, a complete and finished atonement that really saves his people. And I ask you, do you see your need? Do you see the absolute perfection of the work of Christ? Do you see its necessity because of original and actual sin? No other safety but in Christ's blood. No removal of guilt but in Christ's sacrifice. No justification but by faith in our risen Lord. And we will see in Luke how consistently our Lord moved to the cross, allowing no hindrances. We will see how completely he loved and obeyed his Father, 
Do you see how he loved and served you? Even when in Gethsemane he felt within his soul what it would mean to bear the awful wrath of Almighty God as a substitute for his people. Do you see sovereign royal love that will pour out his blood as a sacrifice for your sin? The enormous load of human guilt was on my Savior laid. With woes as with a garment, he for sinners was arrayed. And in the horrid pains of death, he wept, he prayed for me. Loved and embraced my guilty soul when nailed to the tree. O love amazing, love beyond the reach of human tongue. Love which shall be the subject of our everlasting song. You see the immediate application of verse 22, don't you? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And this leads us right to the theme, thirdly, of the confessing life. The confessing life. What is the life of confession? What does it look like? And he tells us it looks cruciform. In verse 23, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Criminals were conducted to execution carrying a cross. What does Jesus mean when he tells us, that if we would follow him, we must deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow. He means follow me, die to self, renounce self. Christ denied himself to redeem us, the redeemed denied themselves to serve him. I recently read of a young man who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and his friend said to him, Charlie, I don't know if that was his name, Charlie, you're throwing your life away. Exactly right. He was throwing his life away in order to gain his life. Don't miss, we are to do this daily, the text says. Daily battle, daily warfare. So how is it with us? Where is our daily battle? Where is our daily self-denial? Where is our putting down of self-pleasing and worldly-mindedness and finding Christ as our all? Galatians 5.24, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. But do you see the paradox of discipleship in verse 24? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so Jesus is saying essentially saving one's life now results in losing it. It is spiritual suicide. Losing your life now results in saving it in the end. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, I died for you, now you follow me. Through the straight gate, follow me. Against the grain, follow me. No matter what comes, follow me. And we are to respond, I am redeemed. Not to gratify myself, but to please my Redeemer. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. And so the stress here is upon the cross. Yes, the cross that you are daily to pick up and to carry in service to your Lord. Whatever self-denial, whatever afflictions, whatever trouble, whatever persecution follows, each Christian has a cross, each has a duty, 
Each has a calling, and for some it is meant to smile at the scaffold or to sing at the stake, but it is his cross that saves, that gives significance to mine. The contrast to discipleship is found in verses 25 and 26. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so Jesus speaks here of the worth of a soul and the worthlessness of this world system to which we are so attached. Now turn it over in your mind and heart. Read it again. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Do you trust in possessions? Death will come and separate you forever from your possessions. Do you trust in power? You are so weak. Do you trust in rank? That's fleeting. Why destroy your soul for these things? You're breaking the sixth commandment. You are murdering your own soul when you trust these things. Because a soul can be irretrievably lost. And if you lose your soul, it is because you will. It is because you want to. It is not because the good news has not been proclaimed to you. It is not because the blood of Christ is insufficient for your sins. And some here care nothing for Christ. Eternity awaits, yawns, gapes. And there is no exception to the grave, no exception to the day of judgment. Think about it. Oh, eternity. Think about it. Eternity. Eternity. And when the media this week says, think of now, turn to the scripture that says the only right way of thinking of now is to think of eternity to come. What can you compare to the worth of your soul? Without Christ, what have you profited? Do not barter your soul for the trinkets of this world. Lose your soul and you lose all. And man's breath is in his nostrils. Just wake up in the middle of the night and feel your heart beat. And tell me, if you've not had the thought, this might be my last. Man's breath is in his nostrils. The believer sacrifices for Christ here in love to the one who loved him. This shows how we value the precious blood of Christ, but we sacrifice nothing in the end. The gain for the believer is everything. But then fourthly and finally, notice the confession of his coming. The confession of his coming in verse 26 For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. 
The assurance that Christ will come in his glory, that the one who suffered many things was rejected by men who went to the cross, who rose from the dead, will come again in glory, demonstrates his ultimate authority. Once despised, he will return in glory. Once utterly humiliated, he will come in the glory of his Father. He will distribute the rewards of grace at the last assize, surrounded by heavenly pomp. And God's people, our works contribute nothing to our acceptance with God, but believers' works will evidence a true and lively faith in Christ. He will confess us before his Father and his holy angels, who now confess him from the heart and with the lips and with our lives, now, but those ashamed of Christ, verse 26 again, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The unbelievers' works, none of which were done in faith, none of which were done to God's glory, none of which were offered in Jesus' merit, none of which were Holy Spirit wrought, show that they did not believe in Jesus of him. Can you believe it? This great, this glorious Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God himself, who assumed human nature and shed his blood for sinners, rose from the dead. This glorious, this beautiful Savior, the one of whom we can say, he loved me and he gave himself for me the vast majority of mankind will say we were ashamed of him. Let me turn to J.C. Ryle. Listen to these words. I'm so very glad that many of you are reading Knots Untied. A lot of you are. And I'm so very glad for that. But Ryle has to say, the world has not yet done with Christ. Myriads talk and think of him as one who did his work in the world and passed on to his own place like some statesman or philosopher, leaving nothing but his memory behind him. The world will be fearfully undeceived one day. That same Jesus who came 18 centuries ago in lowliness and poverty to be despised and crucified shall come again one day in power and glory to raise the dead and change the living and to reward every man according to his works. The wicked shall see that Savior whom they despise, but too late, and shall call on the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of the Lamb. Those solemn words which Jesus addressed to the high priest the night before his crucifixion shall at length be fulfilled, You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The godly shall see the Savior whom they have read of, heard of, and believed, and find like the Queen of Sheba that the half of his goodness has not been known. They shall find that sight is far better than faith, and that in Christ actual presence is fullness of joy. And he concludes by saying, The highest style of Christian is the man who desires the real presence of his master and loves his appearing. Christian, 
Live in the light of the judgment day when you will be declared a trophy of grace before a watching universe. And young people, in light of these verses, I call upon you, I urge you, own your master, believe his word, confess his name, and never be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Some of you are too young to remember an illustration that I gave many years ago that I heard from an old minister. But evidently, there was a crowd who had gathered around a a blasphemer, a a confessed atheist, though there really is no such thing. They simply suppress what they know to be true. And he was blaspheming the Savior, speaking against the Word of God. And some Christian in the crowd said, is there no one here that can stand up and speak? And say something for the Savior? And there were four teenage girls who stood up. And they said, well, we can't preach, but we can sing. And they stood on the box in place of the blasphemer, and they began to sing. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. And the crowd was subdued and softened by the courageous witness of these four teenage girls. I call upon you, young people, let no one intimidate you. God's word is true. Let no one intimidate you when you go off to college and someone has a string of degrees behind his name. I mean, after all, he believes that you arose from primeval ooze. That's not too smart, is it? Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Now, kingdom power is an encouragement, and he says in verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And the next passage, of course, is the transfiguration in which the glory of the kingdom is displayed to the disciples, to some of them. So there is the transfiguration, there is Pentecost, the powerful spread of the gospel through the suffering and death of Christ, the ascended Jesus on his throne now exercises royal authority, and these things anticipate the end. But in that day, in that day, what glory will be revealed when the Lord comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, let's bring this to a conclusion by saying this. I want to conclude by asking, if you are an unbeliever, if you do not know Christ, I ask you to dwell on verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Where will you go when you die? You're not going to live forever. When the judge wields the sword in his absolute holiness, where will you stand? The rocks and the hills will not cover you. 
The judgment will be terrible. The Bible says the pain eternal. The loss beyond compare. What must it be to die without the Savior? Jesus said to the Jews, you will not come to me that you might have life. Fear fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Those are Jesus' words. Jesus, not the founder of some great world religion on a par with Confucius or Buddha or Taoist philosophy. Jesus, the unique Son of God, whom we confess. And you think you're free? You're not. You're in gross bondage. Your will is bound in sin. You need the hammer of the cross to break down the door of your supposed vaunted, prideful free will. Free will indeed. Free will is a slave. That's your problem. You're bound in sin. McShane somewhere said, There is no hand can new create the soul but the hand that was pierced. That's who you need. You need Jesus, who was pierced for sinners like you and me. You need a clean heart. You need your guilt removed. You need the perfect robe of righteousness to stand before God on the judgment day. And so hear me for the sake of your soul. Flee from the wrath of God. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.